When I was a girl, I fell in love with finding secret things. Some of the biggest secrets are right in plain sight. We don't see them because we can't see them. We've been taught not to see them. They're willful secrets, chosen secrets, blind spots. And the biggest blind spot of all is how society impacts men and what ignoring that impact means for all of us. Like a furry torpedo to the jugular. This is Honey Badger Radio. Radio Bite. Welcome to the HBR Digest Edition, where we look back at this week in Badger and show you the highlights. I'm here with Hannah Wallen, who does HBR Talk, and Brian... <laughs> Sorry, Brian. <laughs> Brian Martinez, <laughs> who's the showrunner for our news show... <laughs> I think she almost said Brian Wallen, which is really funny because that is that is my husband's it, name. It's possible. It's possible. That's where I was going with that. But let's start with the new show. So, Brian, I'm pre- bring, bringing you into the uh, the hot seat because, of course, I I am the racist. So I have to. You have to go first. You have to die first. Yes. Uh, so this week on HBR News. Um, we looked at a couple of stories. Uh, one was revolved around a Russell Simmons documentary that's being made. It was uh, produced by uh, Oprah Winfrey, and it was regarding allegations that were uh, essentially made about Russell Simmons. You guys might know Russell Simmons as one half of the old rap group Run DMC. He's also a big music producer, um, one a very a very uh, famous person in the music industry, and uh, Oprah because she had. Um, Creative Differences decided to pull uh, away from this documentary and and it turns into a pretty good conversation uh, about, you know, how valid this documentary might be in the first place and how to use documentaries when you can't actually convict people of wrongdoing uh, to sort of destroy them. I also have a story on the new show about a a woman who um, dressed up and pretended to be a teenage boy so that she can prey on on uh, teenage girls. Um, a story of a single mother who um, set up a GoFundMe to and, and claimed that she had 11 children and no financial support when it turned out that she didn't. And we'll you can get in more info about that in the uh, in the show. Um, a funny little story about Wonder Woman and the new Wonder Woman film and how uh, she's no longer going to be carrying a sword like she did in previous films and how feminists are saying that it's good because the sword represents the phallus. Uh, I thought that that would just be pretty silly. And as well as um, our sort of take regarding the, um, the, the kerfuffle going on in the UK with um, Prince... I believe it's uh, Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan Markle. So um, those are basically the stories for the new show. And just to clarify, that's about Prince Harry and his wife stepping back from their royal duties. That's correct. And what uh, the ways in which their relationship with the rest of the royal family has become strained ever since marrying Meghan Markle. All right. Awesome. So here is Brian and his news team. With this week in news. This is HBR News number 238 Wonder Woman's Phallus, Secret Female Pedophiles, and Meghan Markle is a Royal Pain. Get it? It's a joke. Where we reflect on the stories of the week and give it the badger treatment. 
Hello, everybody, and welcome to Honey Badger Radio. I hope you're doing well this week and that you are laughing at the absurdity so that you aren't consumed by it. I'm your host, Brian. I'm joined by, as always, my austere patriarchs and our handmaiden, Hannah, and the two mics. We have a great show lined up for you guys today, so please be sure to continue the conversations both in the chat as well as the comments section. On this week's HBR News Show, we'll be talking about the honks of the week, which include Oprah's abandonment of the Russell Simmons hashtag MeToo documentary, a woman who posed as a teenage boy in order to prey on young girls, a single mom who tried to scam the system, and more. So stick around, it's going to be a good time. Oprah Winfrey and Russell Simmons. So, Oprah Winfrey... Uh, is no longer going to be executive producer on this hashtag me to rap industry documentary in HBR news number 236. So like two weeks ago, we covered 50 cents reaction to Oprah Winfrey's going after black men quote in her participation in a once upcoming Apple TV plus documentary, which reportedly detailed allegations of sexual misconduct against Russell Simmons. Since November of 2017, Simmons has been accused of more than a dozen cases of sexual assault or sexual misconduct. Apple's initial characterization of the film simply read the following, quote, a brilliant former music executive who grapples with whether to go public with her story of assault and abuse by a notable figure in the music industry. The film is a profound examination of race, gender, class, and intersectionality. And the toll assaults take on their victims send send. Oh, I'm sorry. And the toll that assaults take on their victims and society at large. End quote. One Instagram. Uh, on Instagram, 50 Cent wrote that, quote, these documentaries are publicly convicting their targets. It makes them guilty till proven innocent. End quote. Perhaps Oprah took note as she is now stepping away from the documentary. She told The Hollywood Reporter, quote, I have decided that I will no longer be executive producer on the United of the on the untitled Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering documentary, and it will not air on Apple TV Plus. I don't know if you guys have heard that name Amy Ziering before. We'll come back to that in a second, though. First and foremost, I want it to be known that I unequivocally believe and support the women. Of course you do. They buy your books. Their stories deserve to be told and heard. In my opinion, there is more work to be done on the film to illuminate the full scope of what the victims endured, and it has become clear that the filmmakers and I are not aligned in that creative vision, end quote. She continued, quote, Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering are talented filmmakers. I have great respect for their mission, but given the filmmaker's desire to premiere the film at the Sundance Film Festival before I believe it is complete, I feel it's best to step aside. I will be working with Time's Up to support the victims and those impacted by abuse and sexual harassment. Ziering and Dick are previous Oscar nominees for documentaries such as The Invisible War and The Hunting Ground. You guys remember The Hunting Ground? It was basically a documentary film about rape culture on college campuses. This is the work that they've done in the past. More updates to come as the doc is set to premiere in the Sundance Film Festival this month. 
Simmons has admitted to inappropriate conduct in some instances, and according to Rolling Stone, has apologized for the instances of thoughtlessness in my relationships with women. He has apparently stepped away from his business interests and is now, quote, converting his studio for yogic science into a not-for-profit center of learning and healing, end quote. This one didn't really piss me off until I got into the minutia of it. And, uh, well, you'll, you'll just see. You'll see. So, uh, Gemma Watts, that's who you're seeing on the, on the, sh- on the stream right there. Both of them, uh, same person, age 21, has pleaded guilty to seven charges of grooming and abusing young girls. British-born Watts would dress up and pose as a 16-year-old boy to lure in unsuspecting girls. Quote, Watts targeted her young victims on social media platforms and duped them into believing they were entering into a relationship with someone whom they could trust. She then went on to form physical relationships in which she spun a web of lies and and deceit, giving her the opportunity to commit sexual offenses, end quote, stated London Metro Police Detective Philippa Kenwright. Watts used the alias Jack Watton on apps such as Facebook, Snapchat, Yubo, that's a new one on me, haven't heard of that one yet, and Instagram to attract various young girls. Watts was initially caught when one of her 14-year-old victims told a medical professional who then told police that her boyfriend had sexually assaulted her. This led London police to discover that Jack Watton and Gemma Watts were in fact the same person and also revealed two more victims. You think it would stop there, right? Yeah? No. After being arrested in 2018, Watts admitted to the grooming and some of the assaults. She was then released on bail. She would go on to reoffend later in 2018 when she was found with a missing 15-year-old girl who also told police she was sexually assaulted by Watts. <laughs> Whoops! <laughs> she was formally charged later towards the end of 2019. Watts was then sentenced to eight years in prison. Something's missing from Sumlin's story. Jessica Sumlin, a single mother who asked for help after losing her job before Christmas, has been exposed as a liar. During an interview with Fox 13 Memphis, she claimed was she was risking eviction and trying to apply to jobs to support her 11 children. 11 children. She was apparently let go from Taco Bell. Because of transportation issues. (laughs) Raising 11 children on a Taco Bell salary. Some Twitter users did some digging, and a lot of her story appears to be false. Moesha Stan account, or Moesha Stan's account, that's the name there, it's Moesha Stan account, tweets the following. Quote, so the woman with the 11 kids actually lied about a lot. She does not have 11 kids. She was fired from her job for stealing, not for a high-risk pregnancy. And the boyfriend made her start the GoFundMe and lie. Other Twitter users noted her story didn't add up because it takes 90 days for a Memphis resident to be evicted from their home. Close friends and relatives of Sumlin confirmed that she only has two biological children, And the other nine, so there are 11 children, but only two of them are actually her biological kids. The other nine are her boyfriend's children who live with her and her mother. What kind of environment is this? So this is a little little more fun, a little little something, a little more lighthearted. 
in a question and answer press event, Gal Gadot, star of the upcoming Wonder Woman 1984, stated that the titular character will not be wielding her sword from the previous movie. Shock and awe. Gadot explained, quote, Wonder Woman does not carry a weapon. We had an intention to let go of the sword because there's something very aggressive with the sword. If you have a sword, you need to use it. We didn't feel the shield was necessary either. She's a goddess. She can fight. She's super strong. She has these skills. So no, she has the gauntlets. She has the lasso. She has the tiara. And that's about it. This is an interesting choice, given how Wonder Woman's sword was seen as a point of contention by some members of woke Twitter back during the build-up to the release of the first movie. Uh, the specific issue? Why penises, naturally. Uh, quote, am I the only one bothered by the sword in the new Wonder Woman poster? Why does it look so phallic? Why is that all I can see? End quote. One Twitter user wrote, uh, quote, Wonder Woman is an ultra-feminine peacemaker. A sword is a lethal phallic symbol. Why they don't go together is not complicated, end quote, another user, Twitter user said. It's unclear if these now very cold, hot takes inspired the change, or if Godot's words can, can be trusted, and the change was made because Wonder Woman already had enough in her toolkits. Yeah, I was, for a while I was trying to think of a weapon that looks like a vagina, but then I thought, well, the barrel of a gun, I suppose. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. But, That's a good but you know, if you have a gun, you need to use it. Fuck off. The Daily Mail has made a cheeky article documenting Prince Harry's timeline before and after his marriage to Meghan Markle. Titled, quote, Once Prince Harry was the life and soul of the party, so how did he go from fun-loving bloke to the Prince of Woke? The article illustrates with photographs Prince Harry's new interest in preaching about environmentalism and writing positive affirmations on cupcakes. <laughs> I was like to, as I like to call them, cupcakes. He has announced he and Meghan will quit public life. Press F to pay respects. So here's some pictures of old Harry. And I know people have been... Um, Saying a lot about this, I, I'm not one that knows a whole lot about what's going on with the Royals. I don't usually follow it. I don't care about it. Um, Brian, but... Brian, Brian, that's, that's, that's normal. We kind of fought a war for this thing. <laughs> yeah, but there are people in the U.S. that are pretty fucking obsessed with what goes on with the Royal family. Do you people, remember? you mean like, women. I, women, I think you I, mean women, Brian. I do mean women. I, I think I can even speak for most people in the U.K. when I say I couldn't give less of a fuck about this if I was dead. <laughs> I couldn't give less of a fuck about this if I had always been dead. <laughs> and we're back. Okay, Brian, you also had a special guest this week. Can you tell us about her and what she had to say? And who she was, of course. Yes, uh, I had for the Fireside Chat um, a woman named Maria, Her she is also known as the Pink Hedonist, and she has a YouTube channel where she discusses um, feminism and men's issues. And the reason why I thought she was interesting was firstly because a lot of people were recommending her to me. Secondly, because her channel is a lot more uh, philosophical than rather than political. It's uh, she she talks about she's almost got a kind of 
um, self-help, self-improvement oriented channel where she puts her thoughts down. And so um, by be, as a result of that, it's more directed at other women. And we had a really interesting conversation. Um, and yeah, I thought it was really great. So the Pink Hedonist, uh, we talked about, you know, um, everything from um, hypergamy to, um, you know, feminism as a, and how it hurts women as well as men. And um, just, you know, like her journey, you know, just sort of like discovering this and also her family's history with um, totalitarianism as as she has grandparents that were in the Soviet Union and um, how that sort of relates or the, the parallels that she sees based on those sort of cautionary tales and her relationship with her grandfather, which is a lot of where she gets her values from. So. Yes, that sounds really fascinating. So here is the abridged version of Brian's interview with the pink hedonist. Hedonist. I don't know. <laughs> I think they're both correct. All right. The pink hedonist or hedonist. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Honey Badger Radio. My name is Brian, and this is the Fireside Chat, and I am here with a very special guest. Uh, her name is Maria. She goes by uh, her handle on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, everywhere as Pink Hedonist. So welcome to the show, Maria. Maybe this is uh, true. I think this is what I've observed is what people sent me specifically was your video where you defended Jordan B. Peterson. And uh, even Peterson himself sort of like tweeted it out, right? So what what brought that on? What What made you want to make that video? So uh, I've been like a fan of Peterson for a very long time, and um, I-, I went to his his shows. Uh, even brought my parents. Um, such a big fan. Listened to all of his lectures. Read his book, and I found it so uh, saddening that so many women were attacking him for for being this terrible monster. Yeah. Um, it-, it was just sad to see. And then when I searched up. Uh, if there were any women that were defending him like in the form of a small youtube video i think i only came across like three um and i mean they did have uh quite a bit of views like a couple of thousand but i still felt like it was very much underrepresented so then i thought you know what what the hell like i have nothing to lose i owe this man so much like the least i could do is have a video where i expose myself and show how much he's helped me and how much uh his advice is completely universal and not limited to one gender so um that's kind of how the ball got rolling and now yeah <laughs> the black hole sucked me in <laughs> absolutely um you know it's actually the thing that i found really interesting about that was that you said that in your video that there why aren't there no more women speaking out uh in defense of peterson do you do you have any idea why that might be I mean, um, it's a good question. One thing Peterson has said that women are generally more agreeable. So mm-hmm. maybe it's just like a common thing that some people shy away from being outspoken on very controversial topics. But the other thing I noticed is that um, the people that watch my channel, th- there's a balance between male and female, but it's still more males than females. And it's... Uh, I have this idea that maybe women are brought up in a society where they're told they're okay and they're fine no matter what they do. But um, men always feel inadequate, like they need to do more, they need to push more, they need to improve more. So maybe this entire self-improvement 
genre is more appealing to men just because they've been conditioned to always improve and do better whereas women are kind of like oh sweetie you're fine whatever you do um but that's just a theory i have uh wh why <laughs> why do you call yourself that is there a story behind that um i mean it's a very funny username because so many people get triggered by it in terms of oh you stand for these good morals and values but then you choose this name i'm sure you do drugs and you're promiscuous like all of that stuff really <laughs> i mean uh, <laughs> yeah, some do. Um, frankly, I just snapped up the name a couple of years ago when I realized that basically hedonism is about j enjoying life. And mm -hmm. for me, that word does not represent like drugs or promiscuity or party life. For me, it's basically enjoying uh, the present day. And the way I see it is, for example, um, the degree I work for, uh, my blogging activities, those are all things I enjoy in the moment. But there are also things that serve my tomorrow. And um, I'm not sure a word exists that combines the two, but uh, it's the best I've come across, so I decided to use it. And pink is basically just my favorite color. I mean, you can even see it from my clothing and my flowers. Very feminine. <laughs> yeah, very feminine. Yeah. That's yeah, also, that's probably even more triggering than calling yourself the, he uh, the hedonist part, considering <laughs> that girls aren't supposed to like pink anymore, you know? True. I mean, you're just, oh you're just falling into the, the gender roles. You were probably you're conditioned conditioned to like that color you know yeah you probably really like something else like black um totally <laughs> there's a lot of channels that have the exact same content like feminism mm -hmm. and men's rights wise as i as i do and it upsets me that people find my voice more legitimate than say a man's voice uh because the man is instantly discarded as a misogynist who doesn't have a clue what he's talking about and it's just upsetting because why should anyone listen to me just because I'm a different gender? Like, if if anyone listens to me, it's because I'm competent enough to speak on it, not mm -hmm. because, like, I have the correct background. And that's a sad thing also with the, like, old white men shouldn't be listened to. Back in the day, we gave people jobs and we listened to people based on how competent they were and if, if they had proper thoughts we should listen to. And today, suddenly, it's all about social brownie points. It's not about the content anymore. It's It's about who has the most social brownie points and then that person we're going to listen to yeah this is complete insanity <laughs> i don't want to live in a world uh, in a world which is like that and i don't think you do either um but yeah totally valid concerns and that has to change uh, i mean yeah. this is not the path to a equal and harmonious society like this is a path to destruction <laughs> It's really funny what people define as misogyny today, because mm -hmm. to me, third wave feminism is the most misogynistic thing you can possibly do. I mean, if you think about it, it completely sets women up for failure and it withholds vital information. Like, what am I talking about? For example, um, it's a very known fact, very much backed by research, that the more men a woman sleeps with, the more she loses her uh, pair bonding abilities and the more her relationship satisfaction goes down. Mm -hmm. um, so when feminism says, oh, you know, go out, hook up, sleep around, but then doesn't say, oh, and as a side note, uh, you will lose your pair bonding skills and uh, your relationships will be really, really bad. Like, um, that literally to me sounds setting, like setting up someone for failure. You're for, for a life of uh short-term happiness but long-term unhappiness exactly yeah exactly and you know and that's but the same on so many questions do you like, think uh, do you think that's a mistake or do you think that's by design 
unfortunately, <laughs> my suspicions uh, are that it's by design. I think the narrative wants to succeed uh, no matter the price, no matter how many females uh, will be miserable. Um, it doesn't care. It literally doesn't care. Because if we think, for example, back to the second movement, right? Um, the entire goal was to create a two-person taxable household out of one person. Um, so now the conditions are in such a way that in order to sustain a family with children, pretty much in almost all cases, both parents have to work to make ends meet. Um, and at the same time, abortion is encouraged uh you're told oh you know children are such an inconvenience don't really have them uh also maybe wait until your 40s to settle down until your fertility dries up and then start searching for a man so it's like when you look at all of these things in the bigger picture it's almost like they want us to strip they want us to strip away from the family uh unit because if you think about it the less a person is rooted in family um and has no ties attached like children husband whatever the more that person is devoted to work, to being a loyal bee, basically, for the government. Um, so it's scary. It's really scary because you don't think that deep because this entire slogan of Ooh, empowerment, freedom and girl yeah. boss is so yeah. lucrative. All critical thinking just shuts off. And I used to be in the same category of where I thought, oh, yeah. Uh, my career is all I need. Um, I'm better than men because I have this career going for me. I had so much masculine energy and all I attracted was weak beta males because obviously like it's a yin and yang thing. If you have a lot of excessive masculine energy, you're going to attract someone who's really feminine and same way. If you're really feminine, you're going to attract someone who's really masculine. So uh, when that kept happening, I was like, okay, wait a second, this keeps happening. So like I must be the issue. Um, so then I just started digging and my breakthrough moment actually came uh, when I was in a very like fancy resort with my parents in Italy, I started to pay attention to the men that were there because they were affluent. So basically, those were men that have all the options. Mm -hmm. And those men always were with the same type of woman, uh, slim, beautiful, young. And I don't care if those were sugar babies or whatever. It's still a choice people make. Right. So if feminism tells me, oh, uh, you can be obese and you'll be just as desirable as a Victoria's Secret model. If that's true, then why do all these men choose the same type of woman? And that's when it, like, the entire narrative started cracking in my head. I was like, okay, wait a second. The things I'm told don't add up in reality. So something must be wrong here. So I started digging and that's kind of how I went down the rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do you think um, feminism should have a reform or just completely cease to exist? It, it, we don't need it. We honestly, <laughs> we don't need it. As long as there will be because as long as there are men and women, and as long as we live in a uh, in a a world where men um, protect women, which makes sense, like these things are not, you know, they are what they are, and they're not. I don't think they're necessarily bad things. But as long as those things, those paradigms exist, there will be people who will try to politicize that relationship, and that is all feminism does. So no, we don't need feminism. I I. I call myself a men's rights advocate, and I will also call myself a women's rights advocate, but I will never call myself a feminist because those things are not the same. So it can burn down for all I care. It's just a it's just a a way in which to bring in um so a, a utopian thinking essentially that feminists which have to create a dystopia. Yeah, which of course destroys everything. Um, and there are many feminists that just want to destroy everything. I think the overwhelming majority of people who call themselves feminists, though, they're just 
useful idiots. They don't know what they're what they're doing. They just think that they're helping women because they believe that women have it really bad. And the fact is, it's not true. It's a mixed bag. You know, we have we we both sexes have problems and uh they should be addressed as problems they shouldn't be treated as gendered but see the funny thing is because women dodge responsibility and accountability that means when things go bad it's not their fault it's the patriarchy right so it's exactly. a very convenient way of avoiding any type of responsibility for social outcome and that yeah. is so such an infantile childish way of dealing with life yeah if you give women authority over men and none of the accountability, that's what feminism is. That's what it wants. It wants basically, yeah, totally. you know, it wants to basically tell men what they should do, tell women what they should do, but it never wants to be responsible. So like anything that goes wrong, that's why they blame the patriarchy because it's a scapegoat. It's the ultimate scapegoat. But patriarchy and the funny thing is they're against any hierarchy. Yeah. But they want to be but at there's... the top of the hierarchy and men at the bottom. Of course. That's it's why they, they're always looking, whenever they talk about problems in society and they try to make the argument that uh, men have too much power, they always look up. They always, it's the apex fallacy. They always look at the men that are at the top of the hierarchy and they say, this is the reason why patriarchy is a problem. But they never look down at the, the incredibly high number of men that are down there. There's far more men at the bottom than at the top. And we're back. Brian. There was an additional show you did this week. It was the Nerdcast. Yes. So Mike J and I did the Nerdcast this week. Um, we covered a bunch of different things uh, because we we there's so much to go through. So I'll just run through it pretty quickly. We talked a little bit about uh, some news regarding the new Star Trek Picard show and uh, the reasons why we are uh, the people who are fans should be worried that it may not um, reflect the spirit of the original sort of themes of the old show, as well as um, the the cast announcements for the Lord of the Rings TV series. Uh, I watched the the as uh, it Thundercats Roar show, which is horrible, and we go into why that is, and um, and on top of that, we dispel some. At least I tried to dispel some myths surrounding the new writer or proposed writer for Captain Marvel 2, Kelly Sue DeConnick, and her background. And um, yeah, that's uh, that's basically the Nerdcast in a nutshell. Just 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 to get just to drill down. Sure. What are the myths about her background? Well, Kelly Sue DeConnick used writes for Marvel. She was actually the the writer who sort of. Um, started writing the newer run of Captain Marvel when, uh, where the character's old, it goes back to the 70s. Uh, she was Ms. Marvel back in the day, but she sort of fell into obscurity to some degree in comics. And so Kelly Sue DeConnick decided to take to, or she was given the job or task of reinvigorating the character. And she is the one that made the Captain Marvel character into the sort of feminist icon that she now represents. And so with the first film coming out and it being an absolute trash fire, despite that though, it made a billion dollars, um, but it was a terrible, terrible movie. There are people who were talking about, there was an article 
that was put out by an Australian website called Sausage Roll that basically um, interviewed Kelly Sue DeConnick. And it made the claim that she was going to be writing the sequel to Captain Marvel, Captain Marvel 2. And what I saw was initially there was a wave of videos saying, oh, my God, this woman's going to be writing the movie. It's going to be even worse than the last one. And then I saw some more prominent figures in this sort of like, I guess you could say the sphere of YouTube that focuses on comics and, um, you know, sort of geek culture that were saying, oh, no, no, you shouldn't trust this. She's probably not going to write it. You know, Sausage Roll is not uh, it's 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 not a trustworthy source, blah, blah, blah. But when the reason why uh, I'm calling it dispelling is that that. That position, I believe, is wrong. I believe that Kelly Sue DeConnick will be involved. Very, very highly likely she will be involved. And the reason is because she was involved with the first film. She was a consultant and she also had a cameo appearance. And she got a special a special thank you mention from the producers in the end credits. And Kelly Sue DeConnick herself in interviews surrounding the first film talked about her capacity as a consultant, which is borderline writing. And I believe that if she is the main writer for the comic book and she was the person they went to as their consultant uh, with regards to sort of, you know, translating the film over, it's a very highly, uh, it's very highly likely that she will be writing it. I mean, there's no... I see no reason why that wouldn't be the case. And I suspect that that is what's going to happen. And so I'm telling people that they should be prepared for that as a possibility if they, for whatever reason, have an interest in watching this film. (laughs) So if you want to get more information on those topics from Brian's Nerdcast show with Mike, stay tuned. Um, I'm going to make a prediction. I'll put it that way. You know, there's always a chance that I could be wrong, but... I'm going to make a prediction. I'm going to tell you that that Captain Marvel 2 is going to be more garbage along the lines of the first movie. And it will be garbage because it's written from a feminist perspective. And that's why the first movie was garbage. Um, And I think it could have been better, but, you know, like somebody could have made it good. But uh, going in it with that mindset is why you have trash. So I'm basically throwing my comments regarding uh, the thoughts that other people who make comics gate slash pop culture oriented content that uh, currently sort of make, you know, arguments against SJWs and the stuff that they do in the film industry, entertainment industry, gaming, comics, etc. That might think that this isn't a big deal or that this isn't actually happening and people are responding to rumors and speculation about Kelly Sue DeConnick writing this movie. Um, I disagree. I think that she is writing this movie. I think it's very likely that she will be. And she's already credited on IMDb as being the writer for this movie. Now, this this is it's hard to say this is absolute, but it's it's really highly likely. So. Um, did you want to add anything to, to it? That's all I wanted to say about this movie. Is this actually happening? It's going to be trash. So. Oh yeah. I mean, it's just going to be even like you said, if she's not involved with it, I, yeah, you might just take a couple of tires off that dumpster fire, but it's still going to be a dumpster fire. Mm Mm-hmm. In the original series, there was an episode where Abraham Lincoln was, uh, beamed on board the enterprise. 
Abraham Lincoln, the president, 14th president of the United States. And he met Uhura, who was the black woman, in case you don't know, that operated the, I think she was like a translator or something. She worked a computer. I, I don't remember <laughs> anything else. And he said, he introduced himself and he said, ah, the Negress is what he said. And he kissed her hand. And then immediately after that, he apologized for his language. He said, oh, I'm sorry. I, I hope I didn't say anything, you know, to paraphrase something that was inappropriate or whatever. And Uhura and Kirk, they didn't understand why he was apologizing. That, like Uhura said, why are you apologizing? We, we don't, you know, like essentially the idea of race and gender, they had transcended that. They didn't see it anymore. It didn't mean anything to them. You know, it was like they were way, way past it. 16th president. I'm sorry, 16th president. Point is, she was like way past it. And um, I, I, I dug that because what, it, what the old Star Trek was trying to do, the original one, in many ways, it was trying to show you a world that could be. So it had a very positive outlook. Now, uh, it was a bit pie in the sky. Like I remember in The Next Generation as well, they had this thing where they, they didn't have money in The Next Generation. There was no such thing as money. And... Um, uh, essentially, like people say, it's like a communist utopia, um, which I think could be a thing if there was no such thing as scarcity. There was no such thing as limited resources, which in the Star Trek world, there wasn't. They literally had machines that made things and duplicated things. So you never ran out of shit. But all that optimism, whether you agree with it or not. Um, all of those ideas of race and gender not mattering because we're talking, what, 500 years in the future where people have probably moved past it by that time. That's all out the window now, because what Stuart has to say here is he says, I think what we're trying to say is important. The world of next generation doesn't exist anymore. It's different. Nothing is really safe. Nothing is really secure. And there's some comments he makes about uh, how this show is going to say things about, you know, the world that we live in with Brexit and Trump because he doesn't get it. He doesn't understand why people, you know, um, voted the way they did or why people want to leave the European Union and so on. And so basically what this tells you is, is that this show is going to be small thinking as opposed to what had come before it, even the stuff that came before it in the 19 fucking 60s. They were thinking bigger than this. And that's truly a shame. And I think that what, I, what I'm experiencing where I have, you know, friends and people who I, uh, you know, generally I'm, I'm on good terms with that use the amount of money that... Um, the Rise of Skywalker made as a way to justify it being a good film because it made a lot of money. Um, I just I just want these things to fail so that people will see that this is not profitable or I just don't care how much money they make because I know that these films, they will be looked back on or these shows like, you know, this one, I don't know how well it's going to do, but uh, I, I, I'm okay with all of it just fall, just burning down because I think it's the only way that creativity is going to come back. It's the only way, because to me, I don't care whether or not something makes money. I don't care if it actually appeals to my fan interests because, you know, I'm a fan of 
I'm a fan of James Bond. I'm a fan of Lord of the Rings. I'm a fan of Star Wars. I'm a fan of martial arts films. I'm a fan of all kinds of things. And most of it these days is crap. It's just mostly crap. And so I think that the reason is because there is a stagnant, stale, uncreative, uh, very sort of by committee phoned in and also politically woke um, Hollywood or even entertainment industry in general that has lost interest in being creative, taking risks, doing anything interesting. And I don't want to give them any more money. Like no one should give them any money. Because it's, it's, if you do, you're telling them that this is good enough. And I think that's ultimately what this whole problem with Star Trek, Star Wars, and all these other geeky things that are going to shit is. People are so thirsty for anything that resembles what they used to love that they will give it money. And, and what they end up doing is, is they tell the industry, this is good enough. I'll take it. And what happens? They don't try anymore. They don't make an effort. Why should they? You're going to watch it anyway. And so, like, if, if I want really good stories, I don't care how I get them. I don't care how they're made. I just want good quality content. You're welcome to spend money on it if you want to. That's, up to, that's your prerogative. I'm not going to tell you what to do with your money. Like, of all of everything else, they prefer science fiction or, you know, maybe just like a contemporary action film that takes place in a fictional world, like uh, Lethal Weapon or, um, you know, uh, just like your typical action movie with like detectives. And yeah, shit. something that you don't got to think too hard about. You can yeah. Just sit down, be entertained for two hours. Yeah. Um, but but fantasy is the hardest thing to sell. Um, so it tends to do the worst. Although the people who did who who reveal that information, they they're there. It's hard to say whether it's because audiences are not receptive to fantasy or because fantasy is actually not easy to pull off and do it well, because there's a lot of really bad fantasy films, like a lot. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's hard to say. I think we're kind of we're, we're in a good place with Lord of the Rings films. We can kind of cool it from here on out. Not everything needs to be made into something, you know, we, mm-hmm. we, we can, we, we can, we can slow down a bit. We're good. Well, I think that there's a battle going on between streaming services, right? I think that's the yeah. reason why we're getting all this content because the streaming services are, are fighting for power. They want to see who they're going, they want to get the audience. So they're all trying to put out their own like uh, killer, you could say killer app, you know, to, to use mm-hmm. a, a term from the console wars. And, um, uh, I think that's why. So, it, well, eventually everything's going to shake out, and and you know a bunch of these are going to fall by the wayside. But for now, we're at the height of of that of that war. It's like the Battle of the Five Armies, but they're but they're five streaming services: Netflix, Apple Plus, um, Amazon, Hulu. Uh, what else? And uh, I guess CBS All Access, Disney, Disney Plus. So there's way more, but there's a bunch. And we're back. Okay, Hannah. Are you ready, Hannah? Uh, Sure. Okay, great. So tell us about this week's HBR Talk. It's sort of our philosophy show, our debate show, our examining concepts show. So what concept did you want to take a look at and why? Well, the main thing that I wanted to take a look at this week was the uh, sort of hypocritical take that feminism... Uh, feminism as a movement and feminists in general have when it comes to what constitutes equality 
between men and women. Uh, we're equal in every way, and uh, no biological differences, no gender differences, when it benefits feminism to say that there is nothing that, that men can do that women can't do, and therefore no thing that men can earn that women aren't also earning. But at the same time, as soon as there's some thing to be held accountable for, bad behavior, uh, being responsible for some aspect of life, anything like intimate partner and sexual violence where female perpetrators are, are subject to potentially uh, equal accountability, suddenly women are smaller and weaker and biological differences matter. And this basically allows feminists to go back and forth between different issues and ask for discrimination against men, uh, but not, not uh, accept any similar accountability or any similar um, disadvantage to women when equality would, uh, would disadvantage women in comparison to the way they are normally treated. Uh, so we had actually four of us on that night uh, discussing this issue. We had Lauren B., who has been on the show quite a bit, uh, in the last last several months, and is uh, hopefully going to be a regular for quite some time. Uh, she's basically she's been a political commentator on social media for quite a while, and uh, has has actually incurred the wrath of feminists to the degree that um, they they had they demonstrated their double standard by harassing her, doxing her, creating a parody account specifically to harass her and her family, and. Uh, you know, engaging in all of the same type of behaviors that they accuse men of engaging in towards feminists who speak out politically. Uh, we had, obviously, you, Allison, um, who I asked to come Woo! on because I thought <laughs> thought uh, it would be good to hear from our fearless leader, and it would also be good to, uh, to have more than just uh, me and Lauren on, and I didn't know Karen was going to be able to be on because miscommunication. So I got to have Allison and Karen on the show at the same time. Um, everybody knows uh, Karen Strawn, the leader of the MRA, um, as along with me and, and, and along with uh, Allison, we're all the leader of the MRA, depending on which one of us has, <laughs> has done something angering to the feminists who call the men's rights movement the MRA. Um, so everybody who doesn't know the MRA is sort of a joke because the acronym stands for men's rights activist. So if we're all the leader of the men's rights activists, we're all the leader of the one guy who does this. Exactly. Which <laughs> doesn't make any <laughs> sense. And often the media will mis mistake the MRA, the men's rights activist for the men's rights movement. You know, to be honest, because I think research um, failure. I think the left-wing media hates the National Rifle Association, and that's the NRA. So they like to call us the MRA uh -huh. because that sounds similar to the NRA, and so for them, it's a demonizing factor. But uh, all right, but yeah, we had so, all four of us on and and had a great discussion. All right, so if you guys want to listen to the rest of HBR Talk, abridged version. Keep listening. 
Previously on HBR Talk, we've discussed what I've labeled the feminist advocacy research scam, a form of academic fraud wherein dogma is established as accepted, unquestionable fact through academic chicanery instead of rigorous vetting. Feminist writing and biased research are used to support conclusions that have no basis in fact and wrongly applied to the general population, but not widely promoted. Instead, they're buried under layers of citation and essay with an end result in the form of a report from newer research that traces back to the previous layer. That is then widely promoted with the flaws at its roots shielded from public scrutiny by a trail of citations mostly hidden behind paywalls or in exclusive academic libraries. When the validity of any claims based on these House of Cards supported reports is challenged, the feminist response is not to provide evidence because they don't have any. These are the resplendent garments of a thoroughly naked emperor, or perhaps an empress, and you'd better proclaim their elegance and beauty, lest you become the target of a smear campaign by her supporters. They will use shaming, crybullying, and censorship to shut the questioner down before the entire scam gets exposed. That behavior has been protecting feminist narratives for decades. This is how a belief like the Duluth model of official response to intimate partner and sexual violence makes its way into becoming internationally standard practice, despite the fact that even one of its creators admits that it is based solely on ideology. It's how the toxic masculinity narrative became established as an issue to be confronted by the American Psychological Association, despite the fact that feminism's use of it originated not with research, but with Rayo Connell's gender dysphoria filtered through her feminist belief in patriarchy theory and buried under layers of self-citation. And patriarchy. patriarchy. There's another feminist, because we said so, narrative that is often explained using made-up terms designed to validate otherwise ridiculous attitudes and impositions like imputations of malice against the entire male population. You know, because if a feminist gives her narrative a label, like malived experience, you can't question it. It must be real because it has a name, right? Try to get one to prove their crazy conspiracy theory and you will be treated to several rounds of circular reasoning that presents adversity faced by women and girls as if it is unique in type or degree, cites that as evidence of patriarchal oppression, then cites this alleged patriarchal oppression as evidence that the types and degrees of adversity faced by women and girls are unique. The fallacy here is obvious, yet the myth of patriarchal oppression enjoys widespread acceptance. Why is this obvious tripe so easily adopted with feminist buzzwords, myths, and attitudes becoming the filter through which gender issues are observed and discussed? Well, again, it's because they said so, or rather because they saturated public discussion with enough repetition to disguise their dogma as common knowledge that only a fool would question. You'd have to be a fool because Everyone knows feminism is about equality for women, and what kind of person would oppose that? It's why everyone knows that without feminism, women wouldn't be able to work outside the home, even though women working outside the home predates feminism by a long stretch. If you question feminist claims about this, well, clearly you just want to go back to the days when women weren't allowed to work, even though there was no such time. It's why everyone knows women get paid a fraction of what men get paid for the same work, even though the wage gap myth is based on a comparison of raw averages among very unequal job choices and work habits. If you refuse to accept the narrative, 
It's not because you're opposed to manipulating the economy based on lies, but because you want women to be second-class citizens. It's why everyone knows that feminists are the reason birth control exists, because there was nothing before the pill. Even though condom use predates the movement by centuries, and feminists have opposed birth control access for men as an affront to women's control over human reproduction. If you question the feminist narrative on this, it's most certainly because you want to keep women barefoot and pregnant, probably slaving in the kitchen to feed families of 27 kids while giving birth to another one on the fly like in Monty Python's The Meaning of Life. Even though every kind of hormonal birth control in existence could disappear right now and women would still have more options for controlling our fertility than men have for controlling theirs. And that's not counting abstinence or the available methods of aborting a pregnancy. It's why everyone knows that if it weren't for feminism, women would never have gotten the right to vote. Even though the suffragist movement, the movement that rightfully deserves recognition for their fight for universal suffrage, was not a feminist movement. And the violent feminist suffragette movement may have actually been a detriment instead of a help in getting women's voting rights established. If you question society's debt to feminism for women's suffrage, it's obviously not because you're a history buff, but instead because you oppose women's voting rights, despite the fact that nothing about modern feminism can even remotely be credited with their protection. It's why everyone knows that until the mid-20th century, it was totally legal for men to beat their wives. Even though laws against wife-beating predate the feminist movement, those old laws carried harsh penalties like horsewhipping and public humiliation, and feminists have fought to prevent men from receiving the same recourse or protection against abusive female partners that women currently have against abusive male partners. It's why everyone knows that there is a culture of tolerance for rape resulting in a worldwide rape epidemic, affecting anywhere from a fifth to half of the female population. Even though research that tracks women's assessment of their own experiences instead of filtering vague answers to vague survey questions through feminist dogma before deciding their victim status for them, finds that number to be at most one out of 50 and quite possibly even fewer. If you question the feminist rape culture narrative, it's not because you treat the crime very seriously and are only willing to base your opinions on accurate information. No, clearly you are a rape apologist, maybe even a rapist yourself, and hey, maybe someone should contact authorities about you. It's why everyone knows that that epidemic of rape is mostly male perpetrated against mostly female victims, even though about 40% of incidents that same survey would identify as rape if the researchers hadn't designed their definition to exclude being forced to penetrate, would be female perpetrated acts against male victims. If you challenge the standards that obscure this male victim set, it's not because your compassion for victims of sexual violence isn't limited by the sex of the victim and perpetrator. No, it's because you are trying to deflect from the real victims, women and girls, you creepy, potentially dangerous rape apologist. It's why everyone knows that at one point in time, women were considered men's property. Even though the laws that feminists cite as evidence for this do not deem women property, but instead make women's welfare the responsibility of the male head of their household, with rights, restrictions, and obligations faced by both sexes in conjunction with that expectation. If you show consideration for men's experience under coverture and guardianship systems, it's not because you recognize the burdens those systems impose on them. It's because you think women should go back to being men's property. Literally chattel. 
And everyone knows that throughout history, women have been oppressed by a dominating and controlling patriarchal system because feminists said so. If asked to prove patriarchy theory is valid, they'll cite the feminist mythology that everyone knows as evidence. If you point out the flaws in their argument, talk about men's experiences of systematic oppression, point out the progress women have made, or otherwise question the patriarchal oppression narrative, it's not because you see feminism as an oversimplification of a rather complex history. You just hate women and want to see them oppressed. You certainly can't be allowed to publicly question feminism like this. Why, you make feminists feel unsafe. This formula, repeated assertion of victim status defended by attacks on the character and social standing of critics who question that narrative, has successfully intimidated or indoctrinated the general public into tolerating all manner of false beliefs. It's been working because most people don't question these narratives, or if they do, they stop the moment their questioning is deemed offensive by the thought police. The only antidote to this is the segment of the population that doesn't stop questioning, doesn't stop digging, searching, assessing, and concluding based on facts, logic, and reason instead of dogma, collective victimhood, or guilt, and fear of social consequences. Social consequences we have seen, and we will continue to see because seeing is what we do. Seeing is why we're here, and why we're hated. We're not afraid to call the Empress naked. Tune in to HBR Talk as we discuss the made-up language of feminism and how it's used to obscure the baseless nature of most of the claims the movement makes. But, you know, like, some people cannot go a day without interacting socially with other people. They can't stand it, right? Yeah. And so I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, Ray Ray Wynn Connell could not stand it. That doesn't mean that it's not just what every man would really like to have. I mean, like, I'm not saying all the time. I'm not saying constantly. I'm not saying he wouldn't want his partner to be the one exception in his life. Maybe, uh, you know, the, have have a rock to lean on himself. Um, but that doesn't mean he doesn't get some kind of grat- psychological gratification out of being useful, out of being a rock for others, out of, you know, being... Uh, rugged and and all of those things. There, are, I know plenty of men who thrive on that. They're happiest when they're doing that. They're happiest when they, you know, they're helping somebody change a flat tire or or you know they're getting on their back on the pavement and and changing a tire for somebody, right? Um, in the cold, uh, and and you know there's like gravel because it's it's winter and there's gravel on the roads and there's gravel digging into their back and, and all of like they, they thrive, they, they get a real kind of kick from that. And, you know, like one of the things that I said in Norway um, during the panel discussion was, you know, that there, there is a hormone feedback loop in men. Uh, They measured it amongst a hunter gatherer tribe in Bolivia where they, uh, they essentially tested saliva samples for testosterone levels um, when men would leave uh, in pairs to go hunting, right? And they tested their saliva every hour or something like that on the what is usually like a, a full eight to 12 hour day of going out, finding an animal, killing it and bringing it back, right? And they measured their hormone responses and what they got, you know, their t- testosterone is quite low, 
through the whole process of stalking the animal, once they hit, get that animal, they get this huge hit of testosterone, it's this flood of confidence and, and a feeling of victory and a feeling of like, yes, right? And on top of that, that testosterone helps them rebuild their muscles faster and, and all of that, right? And, and it boosts their, their vascular system. And then on top of that, they get a huge surge of oxytocin at that moment, which reminds them I have a family at home. That's the bonding love drug. That's the, the love hormone. I have a family at home, so we're not going to sit here, the two of us, and eat this fucking thing together, right? And and just be like, yeah, no, it's cool. We just, we just ate the whole fucking thing. No, they're going to schlep that animal back home because they're being they're being compelled by their hormones to think of their families to think of the and and to take that animal that took them so much work to go out and get they're going to bring it back home and they're going to share it with those people right and uh and then on top of that testosterone also increases fairness and bargaining so and of course they're going to split uh, they're going to split the animal down the middle and share it, it equally wouldn't it be a shame if there was a public movement that were to exploit that tendency i know i know wouldn't it be a shame saying to men with this, these strong instincts oh hey you're not doing enough of that sharing and yeah because 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 you don't have empathy for women men in our society can never feel enough shame enough guilt enough sense of repentance they can never feel bad enough and then, oh, man, did I trigger a whole bunch of feminists with that. Like, mm. They just swarmed in. So I said, okay, well, do you believe that throughout all of human history, men have oppressed women to their own benefit, despite being raised by them throughout yeah. all of human history and never developed a sense of compassion? And the responses to that were astounding. Like, I had one feminist who attempted to argue that there's such a thing as empathic oppression <laughs> I, I told her okay you know the Wait. definition how yes, what, go ahead. what the hell is empathic oppression <laughs> um well it's an attempt to square a round peg uh because she recognized that what on its men, face that's an absurd were, assertion okay so men were empathetic and with women but and but were oppressive towards women like this yes. is this is the thing right okay this is the discussion that i got into on the red pill or not the red pill um sorry the purple pill debates right because i'm back on reddit a little more since i got freaking banned by that cunt mashing the freaking report button over and over right and uh and i i'm like okay so this woman says um I, re the, I really question the extent that these were really privileges and compensation rather than simply practical and necessary measures when you limit someone's rights to own property or make financial decisions. Oh, I had this hilarious exchange <laughs> with one of these feminists and I was, I was saying, so can you identify one situation in the relationship between men and women where men do not have control? And he, we went back and forth for like hours and it became this riddle, and I gave him an additional hint. Uh, female, or sorry, male humans cannot control um, it when female humans 
blank them and he was like oh uh, uh cock and ball torture i'm like no it's not sexual <laughs> and he and it was like hours and he never got i wonder i wonder if it was too complicated but i'll tell it to you guys and you'll be like oh that's really obvious male humans can't control it when female humans raise them mm-hmm. yeah, no, they have, have very little power you don't have any control over how you're raised right. especially when you're extremely young um and so it, it, he never got it like i'm like you you realize this is so obvious but you and i gave him more hints to that did he end, grow up he without a mother it. did he at yeah. one point know. say you know he had been you know, motherless and just grew up because was he raised by wolves <laughs> right well he or came out just of a pod dad. but most most male feminists if they grew up in a single parent household it was the mother they also the don't thing- know what to say when you point out because like they'll blame men for all of the bad laws that feminists lobbied for my answer to that it then is feminism has never accomplished anything because yes. you can't say feminism got women the right to vote who is the one who is who is the the sex that voted to change the the laws in place in order to give women that right to vote women right. couldn't vote so they couldn't do it women didn't take over the government and and force the change who did that you know that was that was men the same men that they blame for things like the violence against women act the same men that they blame for the gendered nature of rape laws which actually just kind of evolved that way uh the same men that they blame for all wars even the ones started by women you know those same men are the ones who every time feminists ask for something and get it have granted it to them so clearly clearly feminism has never accomplished anything it's all been men what 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 i think is really perverse is that you know going back to you know how how uh you know if feminists were not in power they did not change the laws it was these men who actually changed the laws for them they don't even think for a second or they won't even give those men who did change those laws the avenue of saying well they were sympathetic towards your cause it's just because they were men that makes it wrong and bad i mean women who are not resilient are not good partners for men and women who are not resilient are never going to understand why they are habitual failures in their lives when they're trying to succeed at the types of things that uh, feminists complain women don't get to do so, yeah, and you think that they would, because uh, uh, invariably they tend to be the more, what they call a feminine gender expression orientation, so a feminine woman, mm-hmm. but they don't ever consider that masculine women might have something of worth to say. Right, right, and they don't, uh, they don't consider the possibility that the reason men are succeeding at certain things that women aren't might be because of a difference in uh, emotional resilience that's required in order to be able to do yeah. things like, you know, take criticism without taking it personally. Um, in order but to they do also things dismiss, like... They also dismiss the, uh, you know, the perspective of masculine women. That's what I've noticed. Yeah, oh yeah, because bit. masculine women do those things. In fact, they'll get mad at us for it. Like, I've yeah, I actually had somebody... succeed in exactly the way that they expect us to. It's yeah. back to that resource thing. We've suddenly acquired a resource that they didn't decide for us to have therefore we're wrong it might even be when they don't understand 
I have had Twitter feminists um, attack my physical appearance more than my logic um, by a long shot over the last like four or five years that I've been or five or six years I guess that I've been having knockdown dragouts with feminists on Twitter um, and uh, God Evolves the, the guy that got Karen banned uh, actually went so far as to dig up a uh, an image of me that was gr a screen grab from one of my videos that the person who made it um, was angry at me for something else and he altered the video in uh, in Photoshop or GIMP or something like that and then green tinted it for some reason and it, like it looks funny um, but it was obviously intended to like uh, attack the ego right attack my self-esteem except I already know what I what I do look like so I'm not worried if there's a picture on the internet that doesn't look like me that's getting passed around look Hannah's ugly like people people can just go see my videos and they know otherwise and that doesn't really contradict the points that I'm making in conversation right. so I don't get upset when they do that but I do make fun of them for trying to use that to upset me because that's so stereotypical as an attack on a female uh, self-esteem or female ego, right? And they get so mad. It's like, I, it's hard to tell whether they're madder that I'm making fun of them for, for doing that or that I'm not crushed by having an unflattering picture presented to me of myself in an argument. Like that, that, that doesn't bother me seems to really upset them. And we're back. Okay, Brian. You and me did a show. You remember? Do you remember uh, that show? Uh, last week? That was last week, yes, wasn't on it? Free, on Friday, yes. That, well, but that's that's the week that we're covering. I last see. week on Friday, remember? I was doing the Saber Beat. That's correct. Yes. Or we, the Beat Saber, rather. Yes, we did a show where we looked at a uh, study that was done regarding whether or not that, that asked the question, is it true that the YouTube algorithm uh, can be used to radicalize people to the far right, to destructive far-right ideologies and we were going through the study and found that it was while it was surprisingly fair the people who conducted the study found that obviously this is not the case what's interesting is uh what they like they, they uh classified as these sort of dangerous corners of youtube that can radicalize people uh among them were listed some things which should be seen as obvious like uh you know actual like white identitarianism or racial identitarianism and racism and you know uh things like that but most of what was on their list was stuff that is relatively innocuous um and some of it was just downright confusing like men's rights activism is apparently a radical uh dangerous and scary position uh, i mean i would agree that it's radical because not a lot of people know about it and it's hard to get on board with uh with people but um I don't think it's dangerous or anything. So, but yeah, we go through we go through that study, and uh, it's actually quite informative. Yeah, essentially, the men's rights activist sphere was the only one that wasn't really on a spectrum. 
They had a spectrum of identitarianism. They had a spectrum of politi- politics. They even had an yeah. economic spectrum with communists and, I guess, radical anarchists. And, and, or, and, ca- and anarcho-capitalists, can- yeah. Anarcho-capitalists. But when it comes to the understanding of the relationship between the genders, apparently there is only one position that is correct and everything else is extremism, and that's feminism. And we're extremism because rather than believing that the the relationship between the genders is one of oppression and hatred, we actually believe it's one of synergy and harmony, or should be synergy, harmony, and love. So that's how we're radical and apparently dangerous, because we believe that men and women were made to love each other, not oppress each other, and we disagree that oppression characterizes the relationship between men and women in history dangerous we are anyway if you want to hear more about that stay tuned i know that people get unsubscribed from their youtube channels uh something with the algorithm which by the way we're going to be talking about today Um, oh yeah we're going to talk about that yeah so yeah check and make sure you're still subscribed and if you're not subscribed please do subscribe to our channel and hit the bell for notifications so you know when our shows go live and when new videos are added so uh with that said i'm going to hand the floor over to allison who is currently showing us some beat saber um, and we're going to get into the today's topic. So, Allison, it's all yours. Oh, yeah. Just just a heads up, Brian. There's a bit of an echo. But um, so today we're going to talk about the YouTube algorithm and how apparently the YouTube algorithm active, actively discriminates against men's rights activist content because we're considered to be extreme, unlike feminist content. So it, what's interesting is that they sort of have a what you might consider a spectrum with any other kind of political content. So they consider the extreme left, they consider the extreme right. But when it comes to feminist versus MRA, you have feminist, and that is the correct belief about gender and gender relationships. And then you have men's rights activists, and we are incorrect. So there's no spectrum here. We're just wrong. And what's correct is to view view men as oppressors of women and to believe that men have oppressed women throughout all of human history. That means men have never developed a sense of compassion towards women, despite being raised by them, which is really astounding if you think about it, because in the time that women have been raising men, that's the primary relationship that a man has. I mean, there are many different types of relationships human beings can have, but the most consistent one is that you were raised by your mother because all of us require that require there's a certain point in our lives where we require that to be raised by our mother mostly in order to even survive so mothers have always raised sons and a relationship with a mother is the most common primary relationship that a man has and despite that despite that being true throughout all of human history Women have never been able to raise men to have compassion for them or have a, an empathetic bond with them, even though in the same amount of time, women could literally have domesticated every single mammal on the planet to have a bond with them, including those mammals that would start out with the desire to eat human women. So despite that, you know, never developed a human, a human bond with women as a whole. So, but that's, but that's not extremism, folks. 
It's not extremism to regard men to be worse than sociopaths and some kind of bipedal reptile, reptile creature. That's not extremism. What's extremism is to say that men have issues and those issues should be of concern to society. That's extremism. Wouldn't you agree, Brian? Yeah, it's totally extreme. That doesn't say anything about the current state of our world at all that we would even consider that to be extreme. It's called algorithmic extremism, examining YouTube's rabbit hole of radicalization by Mark Ledwich and Anna Zaitsev. And I will read you the abstract. The role that YouTube and its behind the scenes recommendation algorithm plays in encouraging online radicalization has been suggested by both journalists and academics alike. This study directly quantifies these claims by examining the role that YouTube algorithms play in suggesting radicalized content. After categorizing nearly 800 political channels, we were able to differentiate between political schemas in order to analyze the algorithm traffic flows out and between each group. After conducting a detailed analysis of recommendations received by each channel type, we refute the popular radicalization claims. To the contrary, the data suggests that YouTube's recommendation algorithm actively discourages viewers from visiting radicalizing or extremist content. Instead, the algorithm is shown to favor mainstream media and cable news content over independent YouTube channels with slants towards left-leaning or politically neutral channels. <gasps> Shock! Yes. <laughs> Our study thus suggests that YouTube's recommendation algorithm fails to promote inflammatory or radicalized content as previously claimed by several outlets. So I have here some uh, quotes. I, I don't think I can show the whole study. So I'm basically trying to like look at the most interesting stuff. Um, so I will get into the next, uh, the next bit. This is where they're talking about in, it's part of the introduction. So... Mm -hmm. The explosion of platforms, as well as ebbs and flows in the political climate, has exacerbated the prevalence of antisocial messaging. Research focusing on uninhibited or antisocial communication, as well as extremist messaging online, has previously been conducted on platforms including Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, 4chan, and 8chan, Tumblr, and even knitting forums such as Ravelry. Never heard of a knitting what? forum? Yes, even Oh my god, they're radicalizing the grannies? Yes, <laughs> yes. Conspiracy channels. I think this is interesting. Um, so they they're, they classify to an extent conspiracy channels as right-wing channels. To an extent. I guess it depends on what they're talking about. So would, would not the idea of patriarchy itself be the biggest conspiracy theory unproven in history? And wouldn't that make every feminist channel a conspiracy channel if you didn't challenge yeah. that idea? I mean, like, that's probably way worse. Than, like, at least the shit that Alex Jones has said, a lot of that has actually turned out to be true. 
Like a lot mm. of it has turned out to be true. It, 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 he, he says something and then later we find out, oh yeah, I mean, maybe he didn't word it right or he was being really like, you know, out there when he said it, but it turns out that we, we do confirm um, that mm-hmm. there is some truth to that. But when it comes to feminists and their claims that we live in an oppressive rape culture patriarchy that, you know, has throughout history um, dominated women at the expense of women and to the benefit of men. Oh, that's not a conspiracy. That's just feminism. That's just mm. feminism. That's just that we're just going to accept that. <laughs> you know, it's, it, it is it is a conspiracy theory, especially and it's really bad because oh, yeah. it is literally saying that the that men have dominated or oppressed, and that means cruel and unjust punishment protracted over time, the people who've raised them. No other conspiracy theory says that about two groups of people. Yeah, these oh, we raised these people, but they hate us and want to kill us. You yeah. Know? <laughs> no, no other conspiracy theory even comes close to being that ridiculous. And yet feminism is not classified as a conspiracy theory. Like, I, it, it's so ridiculous. You know, I'm a pretty literal person. I'm sort of stupid that way. But uh, so I always thought that when feminists say this stuff, they actually believe it. But lately I've been realizing they don't. I'm, I wouldn't actually be surprised if it was male social justice warriors who were flipping to white identitarianism and back um, and forth. Because it seems like the... the, the um, the membrane between the two ideologies is really porous. I mean, it just depends on whether or not you decide that um, minorities are the devil or minorities are some other abstraction that you think is good. Mm-hmm. You don't actually see them as human and you don't really. And I've noticed that the people that I talk to seem to have a real issue with seeing the shared humanity. So they act like segregationists and that they don't seem to have a, a human understanding that when you're friends with a group of people that don't share your traits, when you grow up with them, when they're your teachers, you develop a sense of, of uh, compassion for them. They seem to be really baffled by the idea that familiarity actually breeds compassion. Um, and, uh, and it seems like for them, the idea that two races can share um, sympathy and compassion is really bizarre. So they don't actually, when they, when they see black people, I guess if they see black people suffering, they don't really feel a, a, a uh, sympathy. What they feel is, hey, their suffering makes me more important and a better person and higher on the moral hierarchy than those, those white people over there. Mm-hmm. No, I, uh, I, I, I bet that most I'm, I'm willing to bet that most of the men that are part of the white identitarian movement, especially the new people who are getting involved with it, were either male feminists or they were um, like sort of like anti-racist activists. So like, you know, they supported Black Lives Matter and stuff. But then they started seeing um, I think that this is like they, they started to grasp at something to you know help them deal with their male guilt as well as their white guilt but mostly Mm -hmm. their male guilt and i think that this is where you will inevitably drive them because you get you push people that way when you constantly demonize them and they have to like you know proselytize themselves and say yes they have to scapegoat someone yes that's right let me let me read let me let me say what you said but in a different way and uh tell me if i got it right but 
what I'm seeing is, and they might bounce from men's rights activist situations too, because we identify pain and they may have recognized that we identified their pain Mm -hmm. and their guilt and their shame. And we're saying, well, that's not acceptable. But then what happens is what I've noticed is instead of addressing the, the pain, they project it onto a scapegoat group. And all of these groups of tribalist men, if it's ideological tribal religious tribalism, racial tribalism, political tribalism, they do the same thing. They will project their own guilt and shame about being a man onto a scapegoat group. So I can totally see that that white identitarians are sort of bouncing from, I don't know, um, uh, social justice to white identitarianism or even from where we're at because they can't, they can't resolve. It's like there's a certain quality of person who's able, a certain quality of man, able to take that pain and walk directly into it rather than try to pick it up and thrust it onto, you know, the black men or the white men or the X-men, you know, insert descriptor of my scapegoat men. Yeah. And, and actually be able to own it and resolve it in himself. I mean, it takes a lot of, of it takes a significant amount of personal strength and integrity and dedication and not all men are up to it so they they scurry off into white identitarianism maybe black identitarianism or um or into like extreme partisan political left or right i or into particular ideology um and it's like a it, it's it's a it's a tendency i think a lot of men it it's a it's only a very particular type of man who actually is able to not do it um yeah. to not take the easy scapegoat because the white identitarians make an easy scapegoat it's minority men and then they can foist all of their guilt and shame about being a man because they've quote-unquote oppressed women since the dawn of time and you foist it on this particular group of men you know yeah and it's really it's really that dynamic and then they can go to war against them to save yon white maiden you know, and it's, it's like, and like I said, there's, this seems to be only a very particular and small subset of men who say, you know what, this is all bullshit. I'm actually going to, I'm actually going to stare directly into the rather than just foisting the pain off onto someone else. Anyway, yeah. Or they're just not, opinion. they're just not ready to, for the rise of the MRA machines, you know? Men's yeah. right activists are machines, dude. <laughs> <laughs> You're dead okay. straight. So claim one, radical bubbles. Recommendations influence viewers of radical content to watch more similar content than they would otherwise, making it less likely that alternative views are presented. This is partially supported, but according to their findings, but it also goes in both directions. Claim number two. Actually, I think they found that that only one in one. In um, other words, there's only yeah. a uh, liberal. Yeah, it only goes like a little bit. It goes more to the left than the right, but it doesn't go into like the the white identitarian stuff. You just get more partisan. But even then, it, it stays pretty much just like it goes as far as what the Daily Wire, um, and like Prager University. Like that's really pretty, you know, milk toast by comparison. So claim number two, right-wing advantage. YouTube's recommendation algorithm prefers right-wing content over other perspectives. Not supported. That should be obvious. 
Claim number three, radicalization influence. YouTube's algorithm influences um, users by exposing them to more extreme content than they would otherwise not support it. Claim number four, right-wing radicalization pathway. YouTube algorithm influences viewers of mainstream and center-left channels by recommending extreme right-wing content, content that aims to disparage left-wing or centrist narratives. Not supported. Though... It does go the other way. There is a lot more far left partisanship. Look at how many subscribers the Young Turks has compared to, say, Steven Crowder. And and I think that these things are pretty like comparable. You know, um, the Young Turks makes more content because they're a straight up commentary pundit show, and Crowder's show is more like a comedy. But there's nothing that uh, maybe there's nothing that really directly compares to the Young Turks. But Crowder's the biggest right-wing channel that I could think of, and he's only at like 4 million subs, I think. And the Young Turks are like at 7 million or something. Now, I don't know how many people watch them that are hate watchers. <laughs> like they, they probably have some hate subs. But then the same thing could be said about him. The same thing could be said about us. Um, you know, so that that's kind of like where they, they, they landed on that. So in conclusion, in conclusion, our study shows the study that I'm looking at shows that one cannot proclaim that YouTube's algorithm is leading people towards radical content. And we're back. So rounding out this week in Badger, we have a very special treat. The return of the Ragining. Justine, we're trying these nuts. Oh, great. Now this is relevant to my interests. Normally, I don't review stuff like Irish people try D-nuts. These nuts, Allison. These nuts. Specifically these nuts. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, God. Oh, if I had a penny. All right, D, you're a fucking lunatic. But there was a little Easter egg in this one. I, I wasn't even really listening to it at all until this. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Sorry, that's not it. I just, I just wanted to hear it again. How can anything taste that bad? Um. <laughs> Alright, sorry. This is the clip. Dill pickles and peanuts mixed together. He looks like such a cool dude. Oh, that's a proper men's rights activist but for pickles. That's a proper men's rights activist but for pickles. Okay. I, I mean... She says it's a cool dude. It's a pickle with sunglasses. Oh. Well, my sunglasses are are orange. They're not black. And I don't have a hat anymore. Um, Hang on. I think I can do this. Got the glasses. Now I just need the baseball cap. Uh, hey, bro, can I borrow yours? Oh, no, 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 no. But seriously, like, this, is that our stereotype now? We wear sunglasses and reverse ball caps? And we're pickles? <laughs> what more do you want? We're pickles and 9-11 was an inside job? No, the stereotype in question is something of a meta-stereotype, as, uh, as I just indicated. What is the principal characteristic of a hipster? And I don't mean how, how, you, how you visually identify them in a given period of fashion. I mean a fundamental affectation that is constant in every generation of hipsters. I'm talking about something that doesn't seem to have a word for it in English, or, or, or a name with less than four words. We call it 
lack of self-awareness. Excensia, if you'd like me to coin a word on the spot. Ecstasy would have would have would have worked there because it means standing outside oneself. It already means something else. So excensia, why not? And it's this uh, phenomenon that is fundamental to hipster mentality. As you've probably noticed, men's rights activists do not wear fedoras, for instance, except in ironic response to the stereotype. Hipsters wear fedoras, at least the ones who aren't yet aware of the MRA stereotype. Some MRAs do have beards, but not necessarily hipster beards. That's right, you know what a hipster beard is. And when you see a heavily bearded man in thick rimmed glasses and a fedora and any other hallmarks of what you might call a hipster, you can instinctively conclude that he is possibly a vegan, presumably a socialist, and assuredly a feminist. And when these people look in the mirror at themselves, at the ensemble they've created, they go, Oh, that guy looks like a men's rights activist! Uh, this is obviously completely counterintuitive, but what's going on there is um, MRA is what hipsters call hipsters. They don't have a word for, for what they are because they are it. And crucially, they have Accentia. They lack self-awareness. They don't sort through their thoughts on a case-by-case -case basis. It's just everything good I notice about myself goes straight into my brain, into my dopamine centre, and om nom nom repeat. And everything bad I notice about myself is men's rights advocacy. <laughs> so that can't be me, because I don't ever advocate for men's rights. People who do that are, in fact, my antithesis. At least, that's, that's my best guess. Second best guess, anyway, I think it's more likely that MRA is simply a term that female hipsters use to describe men who are out of fashion <laughs> of which the closest in proximity are the male hipsters who simply go along with it because they'll go along with anything they say in this context men's rights advocate means whatever the female hipsters don't want you to be <laughs> that means don't advocate for men's human rights or else you're satan and also don't wear colors out of season don't wear the wrong kind of hat don't talk in a polite voice and don't something something unsolicited opinions on Israel because I'll just make all that shit count as men's rights activism and you'll also be Satan. It's two layers deep. Don't do the thing and don't do anything that I call the thing. And the thing is your own human rights, gentlemen. That's how adamant they are that men must not get human rights. They don't just hate you. They are rubbing your faces in how much they hate you. But anyway, so I guess we'll continue. Hashtag not all pickles. <laughs> uh. Ah, so people who talk about gender. I mean, hashtag not all could just as easily be about feminists. <laughs> hashtag not all pickles. <laughs> uh. See, if you're sick of everyone talking about gender all the time, if it all seems pointless to you, then you know who to take it out on. If you're sick of the, the 72 genders and the Me Too shit and the kindergarten anal classes and whatnot, just blame the men's rights advocates. 
call it all men's rights. That will definitely make the gender nonsense go away. It absolutely will not contribute to the fucking problem. Hashtag not all pickles. I really love it when people make a joke out of this because it's really confusing to me how it's a joke. Like a guy who says not all pickles, because usually this is said in response to something like all men rape or all men are responsible for rape. And when a guy says mockingly, when we say not all men are responsible for rape, in fact, not only is the tiny minority of men responsible for rape, they actually have genetic and brain, uh, brain, um, structural brain problems. So that we're talking about uh, a, a sub-minority of men who have problems, potentially problems that could be dealt with with gene therapy in the future. Like, they're, they're genetically distinct from normal men. And we're like, well, don't blame their behavior on normal men, because normal men didn't genetically engineer these guys to exist and behave the way they did. So they're not responsible for their behavior in any by any conceivable stretch of the imagination so don't use that behavior to then smear normal men and normal masculinity that's sort of where we're, where we're going with it but i just find it really interesting that there's these guys who are like in response to that in response to us saying not all men not all men should be blamed for the actions of a few that are damaged by outside factors like genetic problems and abuse and cognitive impairments there are guys who say, who make, who make fun of that. And I'm like, what kind of mentality can you be in to be making fun of not all men? Well, that's hilarious that you don't think it's all men who rape. What? Are, I mean, really, are, are you saying that you rape? Is that why it's funny to you? <laughs> he's, like, he's like thinking to himself, <laughs> these guys don't know what I've been getting away with for 15 years. Does this rag smell like chloroform to you? <laughs> like, seriously, what, what are you trying to say here? What are you saying with this? What are you saying by laughing at not all men? You're saying that it somehow breaks a boundary in your mind. And I'm just curious what the boundary is that it's breaking. Is it breaking the idea that you are not also culpable for rape? Well, the only way that you're going to be culpable for rape is if you're doing it, too. Or is it breaking something else? It just, it's mysterious to me. And that's it. But, like, this is the sum total of all of this. And, and thank you. I mean, seriously, we got to mention. I love it. It's, it's yeah, good publicity. You know, all publicity is good publicity. Your stereotype of men's rights activists is a little baffling, but I'll take it. You know, awesome. Great job. Thank you. These nuts and uh, Irish people try the Tri Channel. Thank you, the Tri Channel, for giving us a shout out. As perplexing as it was. So, yay. You know, it's, it's extraordinary. I'm I'm trying to picture a world where men try to insult women by calling them women's rights advocates. Like if women talk in a polite voice on the Lord and stuff, and they and they complain about having their genitals sawed apart and they get the wrong kind of haircut and so on, we'd put those fuck girls in their place by sneering, "WRA, you live in your father's basement." Doesn't sound very likely, does it? I suppose. If they have blue hair or no hair, we might, well, insult them by calling them feminists, but 
Reminder number 2938, feminism is not the equivalent of men's rights advocacy. For instance, a men's rights advocate will not consider women's rights advocate to be an insult. But a feminist very much does consider men's rights advocate to be an insult. Do you see? Men's rights advocacy does not rule out women's rights, and women's rights advocacy does not rule out men's rights. But feminism does. Although it's not the only culprit. There are all kinds of social forces out there whose existence depends on ruling out men's rights. And they didn't spawn from feminism, they culminated in it. This is a very long story, and this is a very short video. As a matter of fact, it's ending right now. Welcome to the subterranean lair. Under the subterranean lair. Everywhere we go, men are being shamed. They're being shamed for being men, for being masculine, for their interests, for their lack of interest, for how they express their emotions, or don't express their emotions at all. You want to just suck it up and tough it out. But that's shame, too. Being stoic is the reason why women are hurt, don't you know? Or at least that's what they say. Imagine a community where men don't need women's permission to be men, where women have men's back, because as strong as you are, sometimes you need someone to notice you and take a moment to show that they care. Imagine the Honey Badger Radio community, men and women coming together to be their best selves and support each other overcoming all the messages that men and masculinity are bad and to blame for the world's ills. If you're interested in joining that community, and taking your place by our side, helping us build a more compassionate, a more just, and just plain funny world, then go to feedthebadger.com. Support our community. Take part. Help us build something great together. The world needs masculinity. It needs men. It needs you. We recognize that. Support that recognition. Feedthebadger.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.